Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Okay. Welcome to Girl on the Gift Podcast, everybody, to this special, special episode. We had to do it. We had to, you know, get all the experts in line to cover this very important topic today, which is the war and invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And everything surrounding that, it's been a crazy news cycle the past week because of it. So we wanted to make sure we run through all the basics and get a good understanding of really what's going on. Because let me tell you, it's been it's been a lot. And there's just constantly news updates. So we're just all doing our best. So hopefully this episode helps you guys understand all the basics of like who is NATO and really what's going on, what is this conflict, what's going on in Putin's brain, just all the things. So all the things. And I think like just as an important note for everyone is like we always want to be able to bring on experts to really speak to whatever is going on with a lot of background and qualification to it. So, you know, we will be able to, you know, provide resources and whatnot. But when we ourselves are not an expert in a particular area, we want to especially make sure we're giving the platform and the mic to someone that can speak to it and give you guys the fast facts on whatever it is. So this is definitely one of those scenarios. However, I think what's really great about this episode, which is going to be part one of a two-part series, by the way, more details on that in a second, is that you're we- You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we got you guys. <laughs> we're rolling we got through. got you. But, but we do want to, you know, sort of make sure we're expanding. Sorry, that was a mouthful. I think I just tongue twisted on myself. But that we are giving you guys the background on some of the global politics as well. This is a start of that. So if there's ever a topic in sort of more of the global political sphere- let us that you're like interested in let us know however circling back to today today in this moment hello hi whatever is this is a two-part series like we said so this first episode is covering sort of the basics is like maddie was saying like what is nato who are some of the players here what about alliances what that all sort of entails, who can be involved, who's not, like literally like who's who's allowed at the table, you know, like who's exactly. who's breaking bread together. And then our <laughs> <laughs> who's in the clicks. <laughs> who's sitting at lunch what table? Like 
like literally um, why is everything in my brain just automatically like a Mean Girls reference? Because- I was just gonna say it's giving <laughs> everything is giving Mean Girls. It's just it's a lot. It's a lot, you guys. So we're trying to give you yeah. all all this info, and then just also like a housekeeping moment on this two part series. We'll do a normal you know episode Wednesday, and we're gonna run through with another expert some more, just like what's gonna be the future of this conflict and kind of more updates on that but we will also do like top stories on wednesday in our whole regular episode format but we want to do the special episode to give all the basics especially as things evolve and i will make one also little like note on wednesday's episode is a lot of the questions you're going to be asking are about sanctions and like the effectiveness of strategies like that economic ties and all of those things so if you have any questions in the meantime that relate to that end of things line to our dms they are open we will add it to the list we have literally you guys yeah. are amazing have sent us so many questions i was like so oh, many good questions holy shit like uh, we dragged our asses to this microphone on a sunday for all of you to really again just hopefully bring some clarity to everybody's brains and minds and hearts oh yeah well just on the topic of like so many questions hopefully you guys are listening to this on monday when we release it but just make sure get them in by tuesday so we can so we can ask them and we'll put some more stuff on social media to, to remind people but get in your questions asap for our second second part Exactly. And good Lord, this news cycle is crazy. So I'm sure there's going to be questions that pop up that we haven't even, we aren't even ready for. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just going to keep them, keep them coming. But I think we, we can just get right into it. You want to give our, our spiel of our amazing, amazing guest. First of all, she did such a good job at running through everything. So super grateful for her. Literally, I like any time I feel like we interview a professor, I'm like, why was this person not my professor? Oh my god! I get so well, like retroactively like, Ugh. but I'm also so happy to now know this woman. She's an absolute icon. So Dr. Maya K. Davis Cross is a professor at Northeastern Political Science, International Affairs, like exactly what we are rocking with for this topic. She's also the editor of the Journal of European Integration. She's the author of many, many books and papers on this particular region and the, you know, the politics of Europe, European integration, how these countries play with one another or don't play with one another. Like, let's talk about that too, right? They're not We're, playing nice. They're not. Like, sometimes the sandbox gets a little frisky. Yeah, the sandbox is getting a little bit aggressive. At the like, moment. Jesus, can you please put your plastic little castle away like it's not I also sorry just speaking of I'm sorry to interrupt you I speaking of did you see that video of the girl from 90210 no oh okay so So like I'm writing a letter to Putin if I was your mother I would have loved you better like what was going through her brain I literally can't that was the cringiest video I've ever seen in my life I you know I wish I could even fathom what was going on? Shocking. I mean, actually, I don't even wish because I don't even want to know. Almost, I don't really want to know either. I'm I like, saw like a clip I honestly of it didn't and I was even like, watch I all can't. of it. No, I did. I couldn't even watch all of it. I watched like the beginning of it and I just go, nope, this is killing my brain. There is this creator on TikTok, like basically does like fake PR crisis moment. Not even fake, P- like her reaction if she were like the PR person to whatever situation is going on, and she's like absolutely oh, yeah, like yeah. hilarious. And she did one for this. She's like, like, so we didn't just tweet out like a classic like thoughts and prayers. Like we, oh, we didn't go the traditional route. Oh, oh, so we, there's a video. Like and she goes on this whole spiel, and it's just, 
But it's so true. Like there were ways in which to participate and to help. And Mm -hmm. she just, it was like she was driving and she saw the signs for those opportunities. She said, not me, not today. See you later. Straight to my own pathway here and just really write a letter to Putin himself. Yeah. She thought she was saving the world with that one, but sorry. Anyways, we just got so distracted. So distracted. And we need to introduce our guest. We, I, we're like halfway through the introduction. Where were we? Literally, like, <laughs> I think we're at further I feel like you definitely said, yeah, you said her title and everything, right? Yeah. Like we're, guys, bear with us. But anyways. So, like, actually help. <laughs> it's my Sunday brain. It's been a long weekend. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. All right. Well, without further ado, here is Dr. Cross. All right, well, let's get into it. You're a professor of political science and international affairs at Northeastern, Dean, and importantly, the editor for the Journal of European Integration. So to say you are an expert in this space is an understatement, and we are so excited to chat with you and get the 411. And before we get into it, before we go through our questions, which let us tell you we have a lot, so sorry, but not sorry, can you give us a little bit of a window on your expertise, What is your focus? Sure, yes, and thank you for having me on. My research is mainly focused on European diplomacy and especially how this relates to security and defense in Europe. So I've actually looked at sort of the whole process of European integration from when it began after World War II all the way to the present and then have tried to forecast into the future, you know, where is Europe headed? Is it going to be able to create a common European defense, for example? Is it going to be able to really have European armed forces, which is an explicit goal of these countries? And, you know, I think what's really fascinating about studying this region is just how successful they've been at being able to preserve peace, at least amongst each other's each other, as well as really being able to advance their integration project over the past decade. So my research really examines, you know, sort of the basis of why we as human beings are able to cooperate in the international system. That's so interesting. And it's like (laughs) a world I... I am not very good at keeping up with. It's very complicated to me. Like, we're, we're both political people on this show, but I'm like, domestic policy, yes, understand it, but take me international, and I'm like, what? What's going on? So I'm really excited to, like, dive deeper, and we want to honestly just get right into all of our, our questions and our I Have a Stupid Question segment, because I think everyone's feeling that way right now. It's like, what is going on? Who is NATO? Like, yeah. please just break everything down. So we're going to start with that question, which is, What is NATO? Who's included? Who's not included? Give us the rundown. Sure. Well, NATO is an international organization that was launched after World War II to try to preserve peace in Europe and actually more globally. So originally, it was conceived of as a collective defense organization, which meant that primarily, as you may be familiar with Article 5, that if one country is the victim of an attack, all of the others would come to its defense. And with that notion, with that idea of collective defense, the the countries involved really thought that this would deter aggression from other powers, you know, in particular at that point, the Soviet Union. So 
when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was questioning, should NATO continue? Because, you know, its purpose, it, it doesn't need to necessarily defend against this threat anymore. And the members decided, yes, it should continue, but it would have a larger remit. So it became more of a collective security type of organization, not just focused on defense, but also on humanitarian operations, counterterrorism, protecting against cyber attacks, um, looking at sort of disasters and how to kind of respond in a more comprehensive way. So the main members of NATO are those who are in, in the so-called transatlantic alliance, so ma mainly European countries and Northern American countries. There are 30 members. So this is really what it was designed to do, is to bring together in a stronger way transatlantic countries on both sides of the Atlantic. That means that countries that are not in those two regions are not members of NATO. And, it, and it's not also the case that all of the countries, for example, in Europe are members of NATO, as we're seeing with, you know, the current crisis and some of the rhetoric that Moscow is engaged in to try to kind of prevent NATO from being any stronger. So yeah, that's kind of the basics of, of NATO. I mean, I could, I should probably keep my answer short because you have a big long list of questions because I could just go list. on and on. So, so I will just stop right, right yeah. there. We're going to keep keep asking. So. Okay. I think the most seamless like next question in that is how does one become a member of NATO? Like what is like the qualification that's like, okay, yep, you get to come into the club. Like here <laughs> you go. Get past the bouncer. You're a member. Like what's the story? Well, the, the criteria aren't as formalized as joining something like the European Union, for example. But the main things would be being a functioning democracy and having a free market economy. And then finally, and this is where I think Ukraine has had um, some of its, of its sort of, you know, its efforts to join NATO uh, slowed down a bit, is is that it actually contributes overall to security for the alliance as opposed to weakening security for the alliance. So, I mean, these are kind of the general principles, but at the end of the day, the 30 existing members have to agree to accept a new member. And that's really when a new country could join NATO. That is oh. wild because I literally can barely get my friend group to all unite on where we're going to dinner. So the idea of like 30 countries with so many different MOs and like, you know, things that they're looking to do in their own countries coming together and being able to figure shit out. All right, we'll take it, or at least we'll take an attempt. And I feel like another version of that that we often talk about or think about in terms of like united groups is the EU. And you mentioned it a little bit, but what sort of is the difference between NATO and the EU? And also, is Ukraine a member of the EU? Great questions. Ukraine is not a member of the EU. And the main difference is, you know, NATO still, although it is more comprehensive, like I explained earlier, it is still primarily a military alliance, whereas the European Union involves almost every policy area that you can imagine. It is a common market, of course. But it also has common social policy, common environmental policy, external trade policy. So really any policy area you can imagine, including foreign and security policy and politics are integrated in the European Union. And that's not the case for NATO. Mm -hmm. And can you also kind of like now, you know, tying all of this to into the crisis that's currently happening, 
why is Ukraine not a member? Is that kind of the basis of the conflict? Can you kind of paint the picture of like how this all plays into like what's happening and Russia's attack and kind of give that context too? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Ukraine actually has gotten a little bit closer to membership because back before when there was the 2014 Russian incursion into to Ukraine, the EU was able to sign an association agreement with Ukraine right after that. So that brought Ukraine and the European Union much, much closer together. But it is much, much more difficult to join the EU. It's usually a 10-year process. There, There's a whole checklist, hundreds of, of different items that Ukraine would have to fulfill in order to join, including potentially changing its constitution, certainly becoming much more solidified as a democracy, getting rid of corruption, and so on. So th the list is is quite rigorous, which is why Ukraine is not a member of the EU. But the EU, I think, certainly would welcome Ukraine into the fold down the road if it manages to qualify. That's been sort of the whole purpose of the European Union since it was founded is to expand and to include more countries that are interested in joining. And what does Russia want? Like, what can you kind of just like... So I, I actually think even though Russia is, and Putin specifically, is spending a lot of time complaining about NATO, that the bigger threat is actually the EU, because Ukraine is quite some distance from joining NATO at this point. But its relationships with the European Union have intensified quite a bit over the years. And the people of Ukraine are extremely interested in joining the European Union. The reason why it's more of a threat is that it is it's simply about democracy, right? So so what really threatens an authoritarian leader like Putin is the notion that countries near him or even his own domestic population would start demanding more and more democracy. Interesting. The classic it's trending situation. <laughs> democracy is trending. We've got an issues trying to flood it with hashtags to change the situation, but in a violent way, unfortunately. Speaking of sort of the violent end of things, to move to talking about troops and people on the ground in that capacity, there's been discussion of and also action of bringing NATO troops to certain areas within uh, Europe. What does that mean? And like, is that an escalation? Is that not an escalation? Like, what is what is the symbolic or even, I guess, like play out of that? Well, because Ukraine is not a member of NATO, there's no real sort of necessity for NATO troops to go into Ukraine and help directly. And in, in fact, if they did put NATO troops on the ground in Ukraine, this would escalate the conflict quite a bit. It would start involving um, multiple nuclear powers. So what we're seeing now is the NATO, and this means, you know, individual countries' troops as well as NATO's common forces moving east to form a kind of line along Ukraine's border on the side of, of NATO so that they can act as a kind of deterrent should the troops in the Russian troops in Ukraine start to threaten NATO countries. So it, it really is not about offense at all. It is about really deterring any further action that would um, sort of embolden Russia. And so the idea is that the signaling is, you know, NATO is ready to to stand by its member states and to prevent them from from getting attacked. But if they should be attacked, it's prepared to act. Okay, is I have there... another question. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. Wait, no, you go. Um, does deterrence ever work? Like, I feel like I took like a lot of international affairs classes back in the day, and that was always like something that 
or it was a strategy that was always talked about, but I don't ever remember there being like a specific example of like, this worked. Like, is there mm-hmm. some effectiveness to it? What's the story there? I think it can work, but only as one of many strategies. If we're talking about deterrence in terms of like literally on the battlefield and moving troops, that is only one strategy. And it might be one that is effective with Putin because he is really militarist at the moment, really maximalist in his strategy um, to use to use his troops and to even threaten nuclear attacks. So I think that, you know, it can work. But at the moment, what's really really sort of powerfully kind of a powerful response to what Putin is doing are all of these sanctions and sort of condemnations, sort of punishing economic responses to what what he's doing. So so these actions alongside, you know, more traditional military deterrence can work. If you're dealing with someone like Putin, though, where it seems as though he he may not even be behaving very rationally, How can you even make the calculation that this will work or not work? I mean, the very existence of NATO is already deterrence, right? And Mm -hmm. the fact that the United States and other nuclear powers are in NATO and and Article 5, attack on one means an attack on all, already is deterrence. So just moving troops over to to the border of Ukraine to create that red line is, is basically the actuation of, you know, the already existing deterrence. And so you're right, he was absolutely aware that that this existed. I think he is caught a little bit off guard, though, by just how strong the collective response is. He His strategy has always been to divide the West, especially to divide EU member states. But instead, what he's seeing is they're all getting so much more um, consolidated, any sorts of minor disagreements they had or even bigger disagreements on how to act in foreign policy have evaporated in the face of his aggression. Mm. Which is super interesting in general of like seeing how people can really rally together and obviously countries in this case. That's one example of a strategic alliance looking at Ukraine specifically and obviously they're not in EU, they're not in NATO. Are they a part of any other strategic alliances that exist? Are there others that we should be aware of? I know those two obviously are spoken about a lot but do any mm-hmm. others exist in sort of that capacity in that region? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Ukraine is actually a partner of NATO, which means it does have a close relationship and it does cooperate carefully with NATO. And then, as I mentioned, it it is in an associate, association agreement with the EU. So in that sense, it has alliances. I would say just the very fact that it is a democracy puts it in kind of the strategic alliance of all democracies around the world. And so that's what we're seeing. It's not just the West responding to Russia's aggression. It's really most every country in the world condemning it. So in that sense, you know, when you have this kind of international order that's built on democracy, international institutions, use of force as a last resort, Ukraine is very much in that. And it's quite inspiring for all democracies around the world to see it standing up really literally for the protection of this this world order that we have. Mm -hmm. And how does Belarus play into this? Yeah, I mean, Belarus has an interesting um, history in this as well, because it actually wasn't too long ago that it was in a position where the, the, you know, domestic public was rising up and demanding democracy as well. I mean, Mm. just like other post-Soviet states, these countries really feel the draw of, of democracy and they want to move in that direction. They're not perfect, but they're trying to get there. Unfortunately, because of 
Russia's influence in Belarus, the Russian government helped to to quash the the protests. And so now Belarus is in kind of a position of being dominated by Russia, actually a position that Russia would like to see Ukraine in as well. And so because of that, the Russian military is using Belarus as a staging ground for its attack on Ukraine at the same time. And there's quite a bit of evidence showing that, you know, the soldiers of Belarus are also participating alongside Russian soldiers Mm. in this invasion of Ukraine. Looking at, obviously, Russia's influence on Belarus, Mm -hmm. you, you Mm -hmm. know, think about like some of the other countries that are border adjacent Mm -hmm. and sort of where they're at, some of them in NATO, some of them not in NATO. Mm -hmm. What do you think this is going to do for the rest of Europe, influence what it does? How do you think it's going to also like influence some of those border countries like a, or even just regional, you know, sisters and brothers or whatever of like a Finland and a Sweden? What's the temperature on that? Well, I think Putin's going to have to be very careful about next steps in this regard, because a lot of those other countries are in the European Union. And the EU actually has an article that's akin to Article 5 in NATO. It's a mutual defense clause. So, you know, if if Putin threatens Sweden and Finland or the former Soviet states, the Baltic countries, he's talking about EU member states here. And most, the vast majority of EU member states are also in NATO. In a way, there's really no distinction here, right? It's saying if Putin threatens non-NATO member states and tells them whatever he wants to tell them, such as you know, you better not join NATO. The thing is, they're in the EU. And the European Union is is similar in that respect. The EU is often thought of as a pillar within NATO. It's very, very closely um, related in what it does with its foreign policy, particularly in terms of defense. And then can we kind of also start talking about like Putin and some of the narratives he's pushing and the propaganda around this invasion <laughs> and maybe like what's what's even the narrative in Russia? What are people in Russia thinking of what's going on? There's this idea that the Russians are invading to protect their people from Nazis. What What's some of the propaganda happening coming from Putin on the situation? Yeah, the propaganda is really (laughs) out of control in many ways. Mm -hmm. The disinformation level is extremely high at the moment, and it's getting to the point where really Russian citizens, some of them are realizing and they're taking to the streets to protest this invasion. They don't like what their country is doing in Ukraine. Some of the stuff that you hear, like the denazification of Ukraine or genocide in Ukraine being a pretext for war, this is just pure disinformation. This is just, you know, a narrative that Putin is creating to justify his actions. But it's simply not true. And, And you have to sort of wonder if maybe he even has started believing the lies because everything he's doing is backfiring, right? Mm -hmm. You know, sending the troops in and not realizing how much the Ukrainian citizens are prepared to stand up to protect their country and their cities Mm -hmm. to hold back the troops. So the longer that this drags on, you know, I think Putin really expected a much kind of quicker seizure of of Kyiv in particular. The longer it drags on, the more the disinformation becomes pretty clear. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. more dramatic. And even Russian troops on the ground are sort of wondering what's going on here. Where's the genocide? You know, where's the Ukrainian people welcoming us because they were told all of these lies. Um, And, you know, you just once you're faced with reality, that's that kind of put us puts a stop to the disinformation. But it is it's it's not as though it can go away very easily because with the use of social media, 
and sort of the closed off nature of Russian media where there's almost no free speech. It's it, it's hard for people to get a grip on on what's actually going on, but they are becoming more and more aware, I think, over time. That is such a good point, though, of like you're told one narrative and then you literally are then sent to like the place that yeah. is apparently happening. And then you're like, wait, yeah, what? right, exactly. Like, and just, some yeah. of the some of the troops thought that this was just a training exercise and they're they're arriving and saying, wait a minute, what's what's going on? This is real battle in streets wait, where really? citizens have the citizens have picked up you know, machine guns that have yeah. been handed out by the government, over 18,000 of them, they've made their own homemade bombs. And the troops are from Russia are kind of wondering, you know, what, what exactly, why are we here? What's why going on here? Some right. of them really don't understand. And so this is contributing to a kind of decline in morale, which makes it all the more difficult to fight their way through these cities. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's and, interesting. Which is just also like, another casualty of war too that's so heartbreaking it's like these people mm-hmm. don't even know why they're there they're fighting for something that doesn't relate to them and yeah here we are but you made mention of sort of the big behemoth that is russian media and how it's very cut off and whatnot especially even that on social media and i know instagram started labeling all of like their accounts as you know state-run media Facebook also has been doing that as well. I know there's a few changes in terms of Twitter, YouTube, and policies and whatnot, but obviously that's out there. But what exactly is state-run media? Like, what does that qualify as? And, like, does the United States have, like, a similar thing? Or is this just sort of a authoritarian regime situation that happens? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a sliding scale to some degree when you're looking at the media, but there's there's quite a clear distinction here in an authoritarian regime like Russia, it's similar to China, where essentially you you are not allowed to speak out against the government. So the media in Russia is essentially, you know, the spokespiece of of the Russian government. It's it's essentially saying what the Russian government wants it to say. And journalists who defy this could be arrested. They could be killed. You know, people on the street are being dragged away for speaking out. So they, the Russian media is reporting what the Russian government wants the Russian people to think. So it's very different. In a, in a democracy, sometimes you do have situations where you know the media is spreading disinformation, which has clearly happened in the U.S. more recently, where some sectors of the media are, are simply not reporting the truth at all. But at least in, in a democracy like the United States, you have free speech, so you can mm-hmm. have ways to check this and to um, point out when something is incorrect, and you won't face ramifications of, of arrest or worse. So there's definitely a difference there. Totally. Well, now talking then, too, about just kind of narratives and the politics at play here at home and, you know, thinking about it from this American lens, you know, the politics immediately just start going off when something like this happens. Conservatives and President Trump and how Trump and Putin had this little bromance and what's kind of the relationship there right now. There's a narrative out there that, like, if Trump was in office, this wouldn't be the case. They had a very interesting relationship. So can you kind of paint that picture and also kind of like what some of the political narratives are here at home about everything. Sure. Yeah. It's well, as you've probably seen, Trump recently called Putin a genius as he was on the eve of attacking Ukraine. So that really kind of gives you the barometer of just how 
far off his thinking is on this. It's it is really problematic and it is really a break from American history where you know, usually leaders in this country will stand with the interests of the country. It's almost a no-brainer to say it. But, you know, the fact that Trump, when he was president, was cozying up to Putin was was an alarming scene to observe. But it wasn't just confined to Putin alone. I mean, Kim Jong-il, you know, all these authoritarian leaders around the world effectively had their respect of Trump. And you have to wonder if, you know, maybe this is essentially his plan, that basically he admires authoritarian top-down rule, and that was something he was trying to achieve for himself when he was president and may try to achieve in the future, or the Republican Party might do this, this kind of admiration for authoritarian leadership, which would absolutely dismantle democratic institutions and democratic checks. So... You know, I I think the accusation, the main accusation coming from Republicans at the moment is that is that Putin invaded Ukraine because President Biden is weak. And I think that's simply not true. I think that if anything, Putin invaded Ukraine because the West is getting stronger, because, you know, Biden has a much stronger alliance with Europe and this has made the EU stronger as well as NATO stronger. It's been rejuvenated. And it was that threat, the strength coming from the West that emboldened Putin, not not any weakness at all. And I would be absolutely, you know, horrified if this had happened during Trump's yeah. leadership because how he could respond, it's it's so unpredictable and worrying what what someone like him would have done in this situation. Totally. I agree. Oh. oh my God. And if that's like for anyone listening, not a motivation to pay attention to politics in the US and all of these elections, 2022, and then what will be 2024, I don't know what is. So uh, deep breaths. But I think that really <laughs> leads to another question, which is how do you think this will impact democracy around the world and especially in Europe? You know, are there any, I know it's very early in terms of, you know, what we're predicting, but if there's anything that you are sort of thinking of like, where is this going to lead? What's going to be the temperature on it? What are yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, the, it's it's such an important question because it really speaks to sort of what is the, the main impact going to be on our world at the end of the day. And I think there are some very positive signs. So if, if you look at just the European region, Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, countries that were really kind of slipping into an illiberal form of democracy have now clearly staked a claim to the Western model, saying that Russian actions are wrong and that this should not happen. And they've stood together with the EU and NATO in launching the sanctions, agreeing to them, you know, taking all sorts of actions that show that despite their sort of their government movement towards less democracy in recent years, at the end of the day, they still are with the West. So this is absolutely a complete tragedy for Ukraine. And it is, we're still in a situation where there's a big threat for all of us, right, in terms of violence and whether this might even grow into something like World War III. But if if Ukraine manages to stand strong with the support of Western partners, I think we'll actually see in the medium term, at least, recommitment to democracy, sort of getting getting into a situation where the liberal world order is really pushed to the brink 
the various actors involved, the leaders, the people realize that they can't take for granted mm -hmm. democracy and um, liberal institutions. So there is a silver lining here. You know, NATO is stronger than it's been in decades. The EU has some of its illiberal democracy standing, you know, side by side with it now. And Putin is being condemned by the whole world. So I'm actually still hopeful that, you know, in the medium to long run, when the dust settles, which hopefully it'll settle, you know, there's there's actually quite a bit that you know is strengthened as a result um, of all of this. I love like a sunshine moment. I do have one question yeah. before we get into our audience questions. And that is, what is a liberal democracy? Like, what is the qualification between that and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, a democracy can backslide in many ways. What what we've been seeing in countries like Hungary and Poland is, is sort of like curtailment on free speech in the media or a less independent court system. It's also involved sort of the, the main leader of the country trying to, to concentrate more power in his own hands. So it can take different forms, but basically looking at what we usually take for granted in a democracy, you know, transparency, the rule of law, independent judiciary, these things start to erode a bit. In Hungary, for example, there even was a kind of curtailment of free speech in universities. So, so these, these aspects are concerning. And actually, the U.S. is not immune from this as well. The U.S. under the Trump administration did experience a democratic erosion, too. Yeah, that's super interesting. But moving into our audience questions, and we got a lot of really good ones, which is exciting. I think everyone's just like fully tuned in and trying to understand this as best as possible. So we have some for you. The first one is, what are the differences between Ukrainian and Russian military statuses? Who has the advantage and why? Well, the Russian military certainly is bigger than the Ukrainian one, both in terms of troops and in terms of equipment. But the, Ukraine, the, the Ukrainian um, military now that it's under attack, also has the help of regular Ukrainian citizens who have taken to the streets to fight and to save their country. The Ukrainian military is also getting regular supplies kind of coming in from other countries, from allies to help them with the fighting. So I think, you know, there is definitely a difference and we would expect that eventually this Russian attack would be successful. But there's also, in the midst of war, an element of unpredictability. And one of them, for example, is that the Russian troops are actually running out of supplies. They didn't expect that this, this initial siege would take so long. So even though it's a more powerful military, it may not actually have the best strategy. I feel like that's like me with shoes. Like I'm always like, <laughs> I need more. Like, uh, you know, like whatever. Like I have more shoes than like Joe Schmo. So like, therefore I'm more prepared. It doesn't matter. Like I don't use them or, you know, they're not prepared for the right weather. And I just have a lot that don't work. So it's a very bizarre analogy, a, but that is exactly where my head went yeah. was. I mean, I'm like, I can see part of my shoe rack from here, so I'm going to blame that. But <laughs> You're like, I can't fit all these shoes in my tiny apartment, and that's my um, bad. Failed strategy. You and Putin. Terrible. Same, terrible. same guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, another question that we got is, is arming civilians the worst idea ever? Seems desperate and dangerous. Well, you know, in this particular situation where they're literally seeing Russian troops marching down streets in civilian neighborhoods. 
I think you have to use every strategy available to you. And if people are willing to fight for their city, for their country, this is something that they have to do. Now, there are at the same time massive refugee flows of people who don't feel comfortable fighting. A lot of them are women and children, Mm -hmm. and they're heading out of the country to Poland and other neighboring countries. So I think those who who do feel comfortable are staying and and they're fighting, and they realize that so much is at stake. They don't want to end up having a puppet government beholden to Russia standing there in the capital instead of the people that they've democratically elected. Totally. There's also like, I've seen in the conservative circles, speaking of all the politics and narratives around everything, the gun arguments here of, you know, the Second Amendment and equipping citizens and all that. Now, like the conservative circles are being like, see, we need the guns. Like, <laughs> wait, to that like, point, I just can't. there's a New York Post, like, I mean, New York Post being New York Post, like anyone listening to this, like, please be aware it's like more conservative leaning and it has a whole sort of propaganda element to it too but regardless I still follow them because it's always interesting to see all sides of everything and they have a story like up that they posted on IG too about like this Ukrainian which what is it called when someone is in a pageant pageant queen I don't know I could not think mm-hmm. of that term and how like now she's like like Miss Ukraine is like taking up arms or whatever and I was like this is some guy's like wet dream like this like literal like pageant queen with her like AK-47 I don't know what guns are besides an AK-47 so I'm like that's what we're going with there it is and I was like oh my god this (laughs) is just the I like I'm like I know exactly where this was targeted like so bad but, but I mean, it is important to be clear that there's no comparison between kind of defending your country from totally. invading troops right. and having guns in your home or not yeah. having chucks on gu- guns and sort of the carrying policy. So as you know, there's just so many deaths in the United States from the accidental use of guns or people mm. who shouldn't have them or don't know how to use them. And that is a very different situation. But than... of course, like they try Amen. to always like, intersect <laughs> Right, of course. Like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. Well, we do have one more question, which we've definitely like touched on and really, I think, honestly, to kind of even summarize everything, this question is kind of maybe good to end on. But the question is, what prompted Putin's invasion? Why now? What is his reasoning? Yeah, it it is. There's like it a does kind of answer. Obviously. I mean, it gets, it gets into some of this. Gets into the psychology of Putin himself. And, so interesting to dive right. into. I want a full docu series about Putin's brain. Right, right, and you know, many experts who do know Putin's brain and have studied it for a long time are saying that he seems to really have a significant difference in his behavior, that he's not calculating risk in the same way, that he is being very reckless. He's getting older. Some people are saying that this is about trying to create some kind of legacy, that he could sort of look back on his life and say that he sort of in some form rejuvenated the Soviet Union and that Russia now has a sphere of influence. So it's It is hard to pinpoint why he would do this. I think people were surprised even on the actual day of the invasion. We still didn't know whether he actually was going to follow through with these threats. I do think that the Ukrainian population has really embraced democracy. It has been looking towards the West and embracing Western democratic values. And this was threatening to Putin. It's, It's not Ukraine's fault, of course. It's certainly not the West's fault, the EU's or NATO's fault. This... The, this He's world threatened. has sovereignty and self-determination, right? Yeah so, yeah, so I think it has to be something to do with Putin and his calculations and not something that others are doing. Nobody wanted this war. So. Totally, yeah. yeah. 
What well, a guy. Yeah, God. I have, I don't know. We, we, I feel like we know many of the men with those complexes. <laughs> but just like to all the guys out there, just go to therapy. Yeah. I promise it'll help. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much. This has been so eye-opening and enlightening and just helped really paint the picture. I think everyone just has all these questions and sometimes they're really hard to find the answers to, especially just being inundated with all of this news and all of this information. So this was really an awesome breakdown. So thank you for for doing this with us. Is there anywhere where people can find you and your research books and all that jazz? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my website is on Northeastern University's page. So if you just kind of navigate there into the College of Social Sciences and Humanities, I'll be there with links to my books and other publications. Amazing. Amazing. And we'll link that in our episode description so everyone can easily find it. But thank you so, so, so much. You're welcome. It was great talking with you. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.